this up. Although I will speak my own words, of course, today, uh, the thoughts have been shaped by many. Uh, there were five citizen experts who wrote papers. There was over 100 citizens uh, and activists at our uh, DNM Food Summit who made good comments on our draft. There are over two dozen indigenous and Hispanic farmers and scholars who shared their careful thoughts about food and farming. Uh, Kenny, of course, and Artie Magnum and Nikki Sprangenberg and all the Bioneer staff uh, supported the Dreaming New Mexico project in a way that it would never have occurred uh, without their support. So I want to thank them before I start. Um, my interest in agri-food systems started back in the 1950s when I was a member of the Brooklyn Botanical Gardens Children's Garden. Uh, these were gardens that started in 1914, uh, were turned into victory gardens during World War II, and then became children's gardens again. And I would go every Saturday, uh, work on my eight by 10 garden, and then look for popsicle sticks. If you found two of those plus 75 cents, you got general admissions to the Brooklyn Dodgers at Ebbets Field. So, <laughs> So Saturday was my great day. It was kind of a refuge from the neighborhood and a refuge from all the tensions that you can find in Flatbush in Brooklyn. Um, what's interesting is that now, almost a half a century later, it is as, it's as if I didn't grow up. Uh, instead, I had to find a new refuge, this time with the Dreaming New Mexico project in New Mexico, and we but with the same need for a refuge, uh, same need to step back. But this time, there was a need to step back from an amoral economic extremism that has pervaded the United States, from a capital, land, fossil fuel intensive farming, from standardized, usually tasteless crops, from dysfunctional legislatures and bureaucracies. In a sense, DNM became a protected space, a space where we could renew our sense of possibility and ask ourselves, what is it we deeply desire? If we achieved everything we want and did everything right, what would success look like? In short, how do we want to be nourished in the next 15 to 25 years? Taking refuge and dreaming led to four tools. The first one were new maps to navigate into the future. First, we had a beautiful map, the poster map, that now is in many schools, many reservations, many pueblos. And it was to remind people, as the Navajo say, that when you walk into the future, you must walk in beauty. This was done by Cindy Miller. We also made an atlas of new technical maps, maps that pointed to the future and pointed to dreaming inside nature to prevent fantasies from occurring. And these were done by Diane Wrigley. We then made a, a pamphlet that further provides knowledge and a foundation for what we knew and what we don't know. Because we found that a lot of things we don't know, for instance, the United States does not um, account for what the imports are into any state. They only count the exports. So when we want to do import substitution to make us more self-sufficient, we had no data. 
And this pamphlet was done by Julie Tennant. Finally, we've done a website that's still in construction to help others see exactly how to do the dreaming process. First and foremost was the agroecoregions map. The agroecoregions map is not a pristine map of idealized habitats that you may see in some conservationists. What it is is a map of working landscapes. Some of these landscapes have been worked in New Mexico over 10,000 years. They've been burned to increase hunting. They've been cultivated. They've been irrigated. And the state boundary is artificial. What it is is it's a boundary around a quilt of six different kinds of agroecoregions, each with its own personality, each with its own ways and rules, so that we avoid, by founding everything in nature, the idea of some kind of cookie-cutter political policy that will only work in one part of the state. Our dream was that all students, officials, consumers know the real sources of their nourishment. They know the agricultural soils, they know the growing seasons, they know the weather, they know the sunlight, and they know the groundwater and rivers that make up their food. By rooting ourselves in nature, we were able to th say, what are the seasons that we can eat in locally? When do we have to trade for new foods that can't be done during the winter? What kind of crops can we, what kind of greenhouses and what can we grow in those greenhouses to extend the season to make the food locally or and seasonally more year round? What we really found out was that, as was just said, in order to go into the future, you have to know where you've been in the past. And we found out that respect an understanding of the previous legacies, the historical le legacies of both the indigenous and ha Hispanic peoples for both their foods and cuisines was necessary. You have to understand that New Mexico has 22 sovereign nations within its borders. So we found out that what we needed to really understand was what crops were still gathered, like pinion nuts, which are still sold on the market, and what crops were grown, like blue corn at the Santa Ana Pueblo, what meats were raised, like churro sheep, and what were once hunted, like bison. We also had to learn what the culture styles were of those peoples, from the acequias of the Hispanic community to the dryland farming and to the waffle gardens of the Zuni. All of this led to us understanding that what we should do is go to the governor and say, look, this historical legacy is really important. This frames how we will look at the future. And so we went to Governor Richardson and we asked him to make a traditional food and farming day. And hopefully next week he will declare that day for the, and it will occur around the harvest moon. But we also understand that the world had changed, and we must combine the new with the old. Permaculture with old traditions, pipes and pumps with the old ways of irrigating. And so we went in and we looked at the new traditions. Uh, we have here three of the great Tosuke farm farmers who combine just those kinds of things in a beautiful farm in the, on the Tosuke Pueblo. We also went into the city and said, okay, the old vision of the sun 
which you could see here, what is called the zia, and we should make a garden that's full of nutrition and full of good foods in the form of the zia. And immediately, the, San, the Santa Fe Community College said, okay, we'll build that with runoff agriculture. We'll do it about 60 feet square, which we had never figured, so it becomes kind of a zia maze, and that will be done this year. At the same time, we went and talked to the mayors, and we presented them with our dream. And we said, okay, those of you who live in the geothermal belt of New Mexico, again, always grounded in nature, you can do an amazing multifaceted sense of what agriculture is about. You could have greenhouses that are run on geothermal, you can grow fish that are run on hot water, you could combine this with all kinds of electricity, hot springs, tourism, and suddenly we began to see that how a community began to form around a new source of energy. Uh, new Mexico now has the largest acreage of geothermal greenhouses in the country. Agroeco regions are also the map for local food sheds, for the geographical area that grows, redistributes food and food products between rural and urban citizens. What we found is that citizens in this map, you can see uh, all the local, the little red, red marks are all the local farmers markets and the CSAs. Uh, it shows how much of the uh, organic food and this was a map that really helped people understand that actually there is a movement. It's not just one single CSA, it's not one farmer's market, that there's actually a network being developed and how to now scale up became a big issue. The circles became areas where we, what we call agricultural hubs. And those agricultural hubs are now becoming the dream of various local areas. And in them will be everything, will be a place for farmers to drop off and pick up food, for coolers, for freezers so that they don't have to come in every day, for sorting and packaging and batch making. What we'll have there is, uh, hopefully is in agricultural education, organic waste recycling. So this is the way that you scale up in local economy so that you can start making the dream come true because what's missing in the United States is the infrastructure that's required for us to scale up. We also found to our horror that 95% of the food in New Mexico is imported. You'll probably find, in your state, you'll probably find the same horror when you actually go and look at it. And so what we needed to do is find out what crops we can actually grow and what crops remain to be imported. Uh, New Mexico will never grow tuna fish. Uh, it'll never grow rice. It'll never grow coffee, chocolate, or mangoes. So there will always be a trade component. And so what we are asking in looking at all the different kinds of food sheds, from urban gardens to the global trade system, is exactly how much can we grow locally and how much has to become by trade. It turns out not too many people in not too many states have asked that. And we hired uh, Ken Meter of Crossroads, a wonderful uh, agricultural economist, who said, look, you don't have the marketing system, so go slow, grow 2% a year, get it to 15% instead of 3% of, of uh, 
food sold within each agroecoregion by the year 2020. So that became our dream. We also then said, well, do we have the ranches? Do we have the farms to actually attain that? And so we had to make a map that the red there shows threatened farmlands and threatened ranch lands because of development or lack of water. And we had to say, okay, le let's get that other group of NGOs that's working on conservation easements, on agricultural land trust. Let's get philanthropists to help the poor farmers who can't even afford the transfer fees to conservation easements. Um, Albuquerque went ahead and passed the bond issue and the whole city bought farmland to lease back so that they would have farms close to their farmers markets. Yeah, it's a great thing. And so, uh, at that point, we also said, uh-oh, we can have lots of farms and ranches, but do we have the farmers and farmers, uh, ranchers to go with it? And just as we were doing that, the Middle Rio Grande Land Trust formed a, a thing called Land Links, which was a new kind of real estate that said, if you want, were a farmer, but you wanted to sell to a farmer or a rancher, and you wanted to sell to a rancher to continue the continuity of ranching in the state, they would become the real estate agent. And in some cases, even the farmer stays on their ranch and becomes a kind of mentor to the new rancher. This reinforces the idea that land is a gift that unites us between generations, between kin, and between communities. So I did a huge amount of research and wound up with my daughter here and my granddaughter both winning the Cochise County Plum Jam on our ranch. And then my daughter teaching a horse how to graze um, <laughs> so that we could have, so we'll have grazing horses in the next generation. <laughs> One thing about food sheds is that food sheds are not just geography. They're really human beings working together. And in order to do so, you have to figure out how to get the food from the farm to the table. And Farm to Table, by the way, is one of the great groups in the United States for people to look at. Yeah, really fine group. And getting the, farm, from the food from the farm to the table is called the value chain. And that, along with food sheds, became the most important concept that we came up with. And what we found out that each crop is particularly special and different, just like in animals are different, jaguars are different from squirrels. And you, in order to really pursue and get change to occur, someone had to fall in love with a crop and adopt a crop. And so what we found out, for instance, if you adopted pecans, is that what the weak point in this value chain was that organic pecans couldn't be grown extensively in New Mexico because we couldn't find enough organic fertilizer and that that was the weak point in the chain. So that if we wanted to switch the whole pecan industry, we'd have to then also switch the, the dairy industry, which now has manure that's filled with antibiotics and can't be used. So you begin to see all the connections. We, we had a, another instance in Velarde, New Mexico, where the apple growers had no market. And so we, uh, the New Mexico Economic Development 
department said, okay, we'll get you to sell to schools. But they were missing the packaging house. And they, you only can sell one and a quarter inch apples to elementary schools. They can't be bigger or smaller because there's too much waste. So the de department gave them a special sorter. And then they have to be polished according to the Department of Health. So they bought them a polisher. And as soon as that infrastructure was in place, the little sorter and the polisher, all of a sudden, we had a new economy where the local apple growers could now sell to the local schools. So, so that, was, that, that was called scaling up. But then also you have to sometimes scale down. Right now, 90% of all the beef in New Mexico goes to Kansas and Texas where it goes to the big feedlots and the bovine growth hormone and all that. And there's a real great move for you know, natural or grass-fed beef. And in order to do that, that all the slaughterhouses had left New Mexico when the large corporations took over. So uh, in Taos, a group called La Matanza went out and started a mobile slaughterhouse where you could drive up to the ranch and do eight or nine cows a day. Um, and that was able then to allow the rancher to keep their cattle on the ranch longer and also slaughter them locally. And, move out to create a kind of shadow, a shadow economy that doesn't directly confront what's very difficult, large corporate economy, but yet begin the seed of what may suddenly take over and become a local beef. So one thing that you know when you're doing the uh, value change is that if you follow it, something like beef or chili, you suddenly become global. And I remember working with Marion Weber, who's here, and in, her, in Starroot Farms, and we would wash all the spinach and lettuce, and as we were sitting around, we'd talk about, at that time, the Trilateral Commission. And would the Trilateral Commission really affect what was happening to organic farming in the world? Well, it's really the same discussion today. Everything has become global local. And one of the questions we found that no one was really asking is what kind of trade policies do locavores really want? What is your dream of a trade policy? And we found that everyone got very into a moral economy, an economy that said, receive from others as you would give unto them. And there was a whole, we then got real here and said there were really two disadvantaged farming groups in, from New Mexico. One were the poor disadvantaged farmers within Mexico who were really third world farmers in some sense. And the other was the food we were receiving from the third world and those farmers that no one knew who they were or, what, or how they were treated. So we created a wild alternative dream. And that was for an alternative trade system to WTO. In it, the state would declare itself a fair trade state and as the, and declaring itself a fair trade state, it would set standards for everything from eco-friendly food, uh, how to do cultivation, male-female equity, working conditions, and the state would just only purchase from fair trade uh, farmers and ranchers. It would then offer a premium price for those because they had met the fair trade standards. And it would then include in that 
the disadvantaged farmers in New Mexico, as well as sister food sheds in other parts of the world. This, this is a wild 20-year dream, but we have to have that dream for it to occur. Dream, dreaming not only, um, these, these are just a good picture of the difference between what some, a family in Mali eats in one week and a family, a family in the United States eats in one week. It's not just um, locally appropriate food that we want. We have to always remember what we want is safe, healthy, accessible, and enough food. <laughs> if, your if your local food is uh, Tyson chicken, you really don't want to go local. In, in, New <laughs> in New Mexico, uh, and in most of the United States, obesity, diabetes 2, cardiovascular diseases, they're, they're all pretty rampant. And so we created dreams for the three kinds of food deserts. Uh, de deserts where the groceries are, there are only three groceries per, ten th per, per thousand square miles. Uh, emergency food operations where the desert means there are no special diets, schools where there are no good fresh foods, cities which don't have full service. And we started to create a dream for these full service groceries to be spread at all over the United States, I mean all over New Mexico. And that included um, La Montanita Co-op, one of the best co-ops in the United States, um, which started a a more full-service grocery in Gallup, and then the Hickoria Apache that used casino funds to start a full-service uh, grocery up on the Hickoria Apache Reservation. We have to really go, I'm trying to, I have to go fast here. Um, so um, what we also found is that if you want good food, you have to have good farming. And so we had a dream that to get good farming, what we should do is not think of farmers and ranchers as exploiters of the land, but as ecosystem managers that provide ecosystem, that provide eco services. And so, for instance, my son and the now uh, ranches and brought in black-tailed prairie dogs back onto the ranch, uh, is raising pronghorned, uh, has agreed with about eight other ranchers, neighboring ranchers, never to shoot a jaguar. And the neighboring ranch run by the McGoffins is now taking care of the endangered Chiricahua leopard frog, including bringing in water to the water tanks when they, when they go dry because of drought. But some farmers need to be paid for this, and some ranchers really need one compensation for their eco services. And so uh, one of the things we've done is we've created a certificate and asked colleges to create a certificate for eco-service management that ranchers and farmers could take. In addition, and more important, once they have that certificate, the, the business schools would create a portfolio management for ecosystem, ecosystem services. And they would figure out what tax credits, what grants, what programs a farmer or rancher could join to be paid for taking care of the land because they ne never have been, and switch the incentives. Uh, 
I got to go here fast. So let me say that we just need to add the nightmare of climate change to the wonderful dream and, and know that uh, this is the wild card that may in fact uh, hurt certain grain growing as temperature goes up and may also uh, hurt the productivity of things like apples. Uh, there's a real need now in the United States to create food security zones where groundwater can supplement lost surface water during climate change and protect those food security zones from development as the first step of one of many to protect against climate change. The hardest part, of course, is governance. And what we found is that we, we uh, suggested and found that the government did not consider food and farm systems as green jobs. So we presented our, uh, <laughs> we, we presented the Dreamy New Mexico project to the Green Jobs Cabinet, and now they include green jobs as one of the jobs that you could do. We also, um, even more important, found out that 10% of all the food purchases in New Mexico come from state, whoops, come from state, um, purchasing for schools, prisons, and governments. Uh, there are 160,000 school kids that uh, get state food. And so we're now working with Gay Dillingham, who's out there, to get the governor, and with Farm to Table, to get the governor to jumpstart the local food chain by increasing the purchase by 2% a year of local food up to 20% by 2020 for all the state-supported institutions. And we hope that Governor Richardson will sign something like that before January. Uh, uh, ultimately, we have to govern ourselves. And uh, Orrin Lyons, my teacher and friend in the forest, has taught me that the Onondaga say, walk gently on the earth. It is the face of our children. And it is the face of our children because the earth ultimately becomes our flesh and rain ultimately becomes our blood. To govern our culture, we need to take on these kinds of thoughts as our daily practice. We have to stop and remember to give worth and shape, which is the origin of the word worship, to soil and water. And here is an odd part where dreaming merges with prayer and our dream prayer of both a new and an old agri-food grace, uh, a grace for equitable food, uh, for eco-friendly food, for good food and farming. We have to stop every day maybe for a half a minute and look at the plate of our food and remember to say that kind of grace and remember that this is what we are striving to speak and act for in America. Thank you.